Today, I have the pleasure and the honor of interviewing, many of you know him, Bob Thurman. He's known in academic circles as Professor A.F. Thurman, and he was the first monk that was ordained by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He is a very lively and lovely human being who's authored so many books, many of which have been on the New York Times bestseller lists. He is down to earth. He is kind. He is sweet. He is loyal. Time Magazine chose him as one of the 25 most influential Americans. And he's just such a kind-hearted person. So I think you're going to enjoy this interview. We're talking about a type of healing yoga called Vajra Yoga that is basically looking at Tibetan healing and the connection to Buddhism. And one of the Dalai Lama's main goals in life is to bring together the Vedantic teachings with the Buddhist teachings in this way. So Dr. Thurman is just full of so many references. You're going to have to take notes. You might have to slow down the tape and go back and listen. He's just a wealth of knowledge. But it's really beautiful to see him talk about Vajra Yoga and what it's about and how hopefully, you know, that type of yoga using the Tibetan healing system can be very much in alignment with what we're talking about in yoga therapy. Thank you for listening to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. If you'd like to support the Yoga Therapy Hour, please go to Patreon and join as someone who is willing to support us for as little as $3.99 a month. Each tier has some gifts that we'd like to give to you. So head on over to Patreon and support us if you can. Now let's get started and get right into our guest today. It is my honor to be interviewing Bob Thurman, who many of you know as a leader in the Buddhist community. So welcome, Bob. Well, thank you, Amy. It's nice to talk to you. Bob, where are you in the world right now? I'm in the Woodstock area in the Catskills, where I have retired to, which uh, in a house that I haven't quite finished building over 50 years. <laughs> so, oh, my. No bank mortgage. And um, and uh, but uh, we like it a lot. And my wife and I live here. And at the moment, we have uh, one of our four children visiting us for a while. And we're kind of trying to enjoy being retired. I am retired from the university where I taught for fifty years, on and off. But I can't retire from the Tibet House, which is a nonprofit that we we operate for His Holiness the Dalai Lama, founded by him to sort of show off the existence of Tibetan culture, which in a way is, gives the message that Tibetans do exist as the people with their own culture, you know, which China doesn't like. But that's too bad, you know, they have to face that someday, I think, really, basically. So, so that's, that's what we do. The Tibet House, it has a beautiful property and you have courses and educational yeah. offerings. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Sure, it's called a Menla uh, Spa Resort. Used to be Mountain Retreat, and it still is Mountain Retreat, but now it's called Spa Resort. And it's my wife's masterpiece and mastermind thing because when it was given to Tibet House, lock, stock, and barrel to operate as a healing center by a wealthy lady who had another healing center, sort of alternative healing center idea. And she heard that we wanted and needed a place to show Tibetan Ayurveda is what you can kind of call it. It's a little different. It's different from Ayurveda. It, it, it's very similar in some ways. But there's also things from Chinese medicine and even Greek medicine, ancient Greek medicine and Mongolian and Tibetan marvelous system connected to Buddhism. And so as showing a very important aspect of Tibetan culture, that medicine, we've been sort of asking around anybody have a retreat center for we couldn't buy it but they want to unload and amazingly one that's only 20 minutes from where we lived popped up and they gave it to us and then my wife fought off our board who wanted maybe to sell it because they didn't you know just be lazy and she turned it into just the most wonderful thing and people love it it's very popular and it doesn't make a lot of money we keep prices down 
but it makes enough to cover the expenses of the sort of cultural embassy that we have in the city, which has a hard time funding itself, you know, because mm. it's like a museum, you can't fund a thing like that very well, it doesn't earn money. But the retreat center, you know, you have, a, it's like room and board, and people stay for a week, and they do retreats, and they come for healing, and there's a spa with unique Tibetan massages, you know, Tibetan meridian massages, which is doing quite well after years of work on it. And it's just a lovely spot, what they call in Tibetan a beyul, which means a hidden valley, like Shangri-La, you know, mm-hmm. where, where the Shangri-La idea came from, <laughs> sort of, you hey. know. I want to go all the way back to the beginning to how this all started, but let's stay with this for just a minute because what you're describing that, well, we didn't have a lot of money to buy a retreat center. So we asked around, is there anyone that would like to unload one? And what do you know? Like, it just sounds like you had a lot of faith and trust that your Dharma of supporting Tibetan Buddhism and the Dalai Lama's dreams and your dreams that you just kind of put it up there to the universe and said, hey, we could use some help here. That's right. Well, we went to that magical mountain in Tibet called Mount Kailash, mm-hmm. which is famous for all the Hindus too, Hindus and Jains and Buddhists. And it's a very magic mountain just across the Tibetan border from North India and the corner of Nepal or so. And we met an acupuncturist who was on the trip that I led around that mountain. And we talked about wishing to find some place like that. And then she spoke to a wealthy person who was fed up with the type of alternative healing things she was trying to do there due to you know community personality issues, but didn't want to just uh, throw it away or give it to the cancer society or something, wanted to remain alternative. And then that lady told her, and then she called up four days before my 60th birthday. <laughs> but it was very funny. My wife was a bit psychic. Luckily for me, that morning, I was just back from Tibet and I slept late, being jet lagged. So when I, by the time I got up, she was kind of in a, in a huffing thing, you know, and said, oh, I had a big dream that we were working so hard during our 60s and you were just shouting at architects and banging on, I do carpentry, you know, and you're up on a dangerous roof, <laughs> banging, you weren't <laughs> listening to me and it was terrible. So we weren't enjoying our golden years. And so, if anybody calls and anybody offers and suggests any new big project, say no. So I said, yes, dear, of course. (laughs) So when the lady said, would you like that place? She referred to it by its previous name called the Pathwork Center. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I have to say no. And she says, really? Why? I said, because my wife said I should say no to a big project, which this will be. And then there was a shock silence for a while. And then before she hung up, I said, wait a minute, let me ask her again. And because it is perfect, it's so near where we live that we could manage it, you know. And then I asked, and then my wife said, shucks, you know, I can't say no, it will be an asset for the Tibetans and we will be working for decades to fix it if we survive. And we have done so, we have done so. She's very proud of it now, of course, you know, it's like her fifth child or something. Maybe sixth, since I'm her fifth, we have four. Then <laughs> the sixth one was the Menlas Menlas Spa Resort. Wonderful thing. Isn't that how Dharma works, though? That we get called into these projects that we're perfectly matched for, and the universe has decided that this needs to happen, but yeah, it's been it a heck of a lot of work. It really did happen, you know. <laughs> I could not ask me to shoulder the Tibet House project like 40 years ago. I was very scared of it, and I was not sure, but he ensured me I could manage. And then I remember that when I was a young monk in uh, India in my 20s, my original teacher insisted I study Tibetan medicine. Mm. I wanted to study meditation and emptiness and selflessness and compassion, all these things. And he said, yeah, you'll develop that over the years, but you now that you're here, you should study the medicine to really understand the Tibetan people and their culture. And actually, it was really illuminating. The whole way in which they look at the body and the mind and how they interconnect it, never mind which remedies and which herbs they do what with and whatever, you know, comparing it to what I call modern industrial medicine. (laughs) But, you know, it's a marvelous body-mind system, spiritual body-mind system, really, really quite marvelous. And so because of that, when I was had to deal with trying to help preserve the culture, 
I thought I had this dream where I got back to that study that I did in my 20s. And this at that point, I was in my 40s. And then, ah, so we will be able to succeed with the culture when we show people its wisdom for healing. And so that's why I've been going asking for a place to make a spa, because of course you can't do it medically, so it's, you know, it's alternative, quote unquote. So that's how it happened, you know, again, like a synchronicity. Right. And some older people sort of knowing what might happen, guiding us in a very kind way and helpful way. It's just such a beautiful, full circle moment to be in your 20s, which I want to go back to the origins here and hear about that. But then much later in life, having that woven back into the tapestry of your dharma. Yes, it really was. It's very lucky. We've had uh, very kind and nice people. First, what they call root teacher was an old Mongolian gentleman who I refer to nowadays to make it clear to people as my Mr. Miyagi. Karate <laughs> kid, he was sort of a person like that in New Jersey, actually. <laughs> After I went to India to find a guru and then briefly came back, and visited there and from New York, from Manhattan. And then he became my total guru. And uh, he's the one who made me study medicine. And he's been a guiding force in our life, like a third parent, you know, mm-hmm. which actually Lama is defined as, you know, you have Mama and Papa, and then the third one is Lama, if you're lucky, mm-hmm. you know, like a soul parent or something you could say, you know, third yeah. parent. So parents also, of course, they contribute to one's soul, thirdly. They do when they're marvelous people. But somebody separate, like a special thing, you know, mentor. Yeah. And just a quick question. Do you think that the root of Tibetan Buddhism and what you're maybe referring to as Buddhist Ayurveda, do you think that came from a similar place as the yogic connection to Ayurveda? 100%. Definitely. In fact, I have following Mr. Thich Nhat Hanh, the wonderful, venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, who said to his students asking when he would be reborn, you know, I guess they were some of them knew about Tibetan, and they said, where's your reincarnation? <laughs> he said, I'm not going to tell you. He said, I want to reincarnate as a community, as the Sangha, the community. He said, so I want to be many people. And then somehow that, I've been in this path of the what, we, what we're founding from Menla and Tibet House, something called Vajra Yoga, sort of a brand of yoga we're trying to find, healing yoga we're trying to found. And the reason I kind of got into that connected to the Dalai Lama's third aim in life, which is bringing the ancient Nalanda Indian sciences, yogic sciences, what I would call yogic sciences, the Buddhist half of them, you know, which was seminal in relation to Hatha Yoga and all of these things, was more and more being discovered, how interconnected with what so-called Hinduism. And so I'm thinking of Buddha as like already doing what Thich Nhat Hanh wanted, in that Patanjali was almost simultaneous with him probably in lifetime, although nobody knows exactly, he's a mysterious ancient figure, but he's doing Buddhist inner science, soul science, you could call it, for Brahmins. Buddha's doing it for the larger multi-caste kind of community. Then there's Badarayana who wrote the Vedanta Sutra commentary and this kind of thing. And so all of those around the mid-first millennium of the Common Era, before the Common Era, all of these things, the Axial Age happened in India. And I think the Buddha team were all the great Upanishadic sages and all the so-called Hindu, the Jains, Mahavira and Buddha. And they were just appealing to different audiences, you know. And of course, among them, Buddha was the most non-caste oriented, and therefore they had the biggest appeal of them. But they were very strong appeal to their own communities, and I'm sure Buddha didn't want to leave those communities out, you know? Mm. And so the team worked together, you know? I think that's really wonderful, and I think I'm inspired in it, not unwittingly, by the Dalai Lama's kind of idea that's very, very creative in our time, that world spiritualities have to rise away from the sectarian denominationalism of religions that want to compete for market share and convert each other's people and say we're the only way and all this kind of thing. And he thinks everyone's duty is to find their own highest uh, aspirations within their tradition and to try to see that the other traditions can find the same things in their own way so that they don't need to be converted, so to speak, but they can share methodology, technique, education, 
contemplative science and so on, yogic science, and even secularists, you know, with their humanistic spirituality, they can also join that. And so I guess I might be resisted that a little bit when I was younger, even though I was his student, because I loved discovering Buddhism, India and Tibetan Buddhism so much. It was so helpful to me that I was seeing it sort of as a tradition separate and better. But he stopped me from doing that gradually. It took me some years. And then I finally really agree with him. So in the Vajra Yoga thing, we're trying to do it not as a thing where people have to be Buddhist, but where people just have to try to find how their body and mind work and become more aware of it and use it and stay. And as Dalai Lama says, stay with their grandma's religion. So mm. grandma won't be upset with them, you know, as far as their sort of membership goes. You know? So that, I think, is very important. So when you say Vajra Yoga Initiative, first of all, just to be clear, this is something the Dalai Lama has said, I would like to have a healing type of yoga included in things like the Tibet house and kind yeah. of bring the Vedantic sciences together with the Buddhist scientists or Buddhist teachings through this connection of Vajra Yoga? Uh, well, yes, Vedanta and also Patanjali, the Hatha Yoga people also, but some which relates to the Sankhya, the more dualistic theory, which is very similar to the Buddhist monastic theory, which thinks Nirvana is somewhere else, which is the dualistic thing, you know, whereas the Mahayana non-dual thing is like the Vedanta, where in fact it's one of the roots of Vedanta, actually. So if you know a little about history, Gaudapada, who is like the grand teacher of Shankara, was salutes Buddha as well as Badarayana and Shiva and whatever, you know. So it starts out as a kind of joint thing, the non-dualist thing. And it really was like that, except after Shankara, then some of the more dualistic Vedantists, like Ramanuja, who were more bhakti-oriented and didn't like the idea of becoming one with Brahma for anybody, most people, they reinstituted kind of dualism. So yeah, all of them, actually. And really, Hatha Yoga, there's some new discoveries in the study of Hatha Yoga and new books that really locate, you know, the mystery that people always had where the four immeasurables, which are cardinal Buddhist teachings, you know, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, and various other sort of mental and psychological theory are straight out of uh, Theravada Buddhism. I mean, they're exactly the same and explained almost the same in the Patanjali as in a Buddhist thing. And nobody quite, why would that be? Since he's a Sankhya and he worries like the Brahmins do about the Buddha, because the Buddha's relativizing of the caste system. Buddhists don't deny it as one, but they relativize it so people can rise out of the different ones. And he completely actually, he challenged it actually very much in the sense that once you- stop there for a time out? Oh, sure, sure. I think that's a really big deal right now to many people in the yoga world that they're realizing the repression that's happened through the caste system. So. It's so interesting to hear you say that the Buddha kind of rejected that idea. Oh, definitely. He definitely did. He said uh, people are not Brahmins by birth or Kshatriya by birth or whatever the different classes were. They are Brahmins by ethics, by kindness, by understanding, by wisdom, by intelligence. So you sort of earn your role as a Brahmin. And there he used the meaning of Brahma, meaning pure or divine, you know, connected to Brahma, the deity Brahma, and the power of the Vedic ceremony and, you know, holiness in general, in other words, not meaning it as a casting. And he totally redefined that in many of his uh, texts and recorded uh, dialogues with people. Many Brahmins sort of, I gave him a hard time about that. He had dialogues with them, you know, and, and but he pretty much usually won them over. Sometimes he had to be a little firm, but he wasn't just, you know, just you're no good or something. He was like pointing out to them, well, your ancestor, because he had the clairvoyance of previous lives, as mm -hmm. many of them did. And he would point out to them because they were sages for sure. And he had teachers from among them. But he said, point out to them that like four generations ago, their Brahmin great 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 grandfather married a beautiful untouchable woman or a lower merchant woman or something and there was nothing there's nothing really pure about the bloodline you know and mm -hmm. it's a legend or myth to make it absolutist you know so don't be extremist about it that's how he would do it you know I mean, there are many examples of that and so that's the main tension that was always there with the more extremist brahmins and the buddhists was that the buddhists 
like if you were ordained as a nun or a mendicant nun or a mendicant monk in the Buddhist order, if you went to meet the Buddha with your barber or your butler or your bodyguard, and they happened to get there first, and they also asked to be ordained, if they were senior to you in the order, they were your senior, they were your superior. You had to defer to them in some ways, but before they'd been your underling, and he did that kind of thing. And that shocked some people. But it had a huge leavening effect in Indian society and gentling effect. And when they lost it around 1200, 1100, when they lost that sort of over-rigid patriarchal family intervention system that was the monastic system, you know, the mendicant system, when they lost that system, then two, they did two things. When they started to have mendicants themselves, before that it was against the rules of the Brahmin thing to be lifelong celibate. Mm. a householder and so on. But then they started to do that when they lost the power of the Buddhist presence there, and they got more rigid about their caste idea again, you know, some of the upper level people did. So that's another reason why the Tibetan gift to India in exchange for the great kindness from Nehru on of accepting them fleeing from the Chinese communists, you know, genocide, ethnic, uh, cultural genocide that they were doing, anti-spiritual thing, you know, is bringing back sort of the full range of the inner sciences in a way where they're saying, as a Hindu, as a Brahmin, as a Sankhya, as a Vedantin, you can empower yourself more to get more self-confidence over against Westerners saying that everything's backward in ancient India, you know, and you're backward, and you're poor after the British robbed you for three years. <laughs> you're poor, and he wants to reinforce India, in other words. He has that strong wish to do that. And they have pride in their own civilization. The Tibetans have this wonderful collection of thousands of books, which are translated from the great monastic libraries of North India, famous Nalanda one especially. So it's like the Library of Alexandria of India, burned by invaders, who weren't necessarily Sufis and good Muslims, they were just conquerors, but they burned them. And, but the best ones had been over three or four hundred years before that, translated into Tibetan in a very technical way. So I've been working all the time trying to help recover them, as I was asked to by His Holiness, to translate them into English at least, so then people can have access to them. Now, the Indian government has a slow process of translating a few into back into Sanskrit, but it's very unfunded and very slow. Mm. Whereas a worldwide community of scholars is interested in that, and they're beginning to do it. But of course, most of them think of it as something of archaeological interest, because modern people, of course, are smarter because we know so much, which I question, actually, personally. <laughs> you should question that. Well, I have a really interesting question for you. I saw this thing the yes. other day on, I'm not sure where I saw it, but it was about using artificial intelligence to basically translate these very ancient texts that they were having translated. I have hope so. That? No, but I haven't really had time, and I've been a bit lazy, sort of retired here. Often I used to go to California two or three times or four times a year and meet with people there who are more into that kind of thing. I have friends in the computer world, you know, but I haven't lately. But I was wondering, in the large language model, have they fed Sanskrit into it? Have they fed Tibetan into it? I think that's necessary, because those sciences are very connected to ethics. In fact, Buddhist biology, which is the theory of karma, is actually like a Darwinian-type theory that allows for the spirit and the mind, rather than just genes, you know, just mechanistic thing. I mean, it acknowledges there is a mechanistic thing from the parents, but the previous life person, the native who comes from the previous life, is an agent in procreation as well, actually and in the Buddhist biology. So it's not some omnipotent being creating everything. People are creating the world themselves, like a Westerner would like, but there's a mental component, as the point is. Mind is not just an epiphenomenon of brain, we're just biological robots. So I consider it a superior biological theory. It's Darwin, one better, mm. because it allows you to have a mind, and therefore your mind has a meaning in this life, because what you learn and develop in this life, you carry with you into the next one, choosing a community and parents, if you're lucky enough to be human again, and getting into a good neighborhood, finding a good mom, and mm -hmm. a decent dad who isn't like a <laughs> silly. <laughs> it surprises me that a scholar like yourself that's been doing translations for decades is 
actually interested or willing to entertain that these large language models from artificial intelligence might actually be able to do a decent job. Yes, I can't wait. Actually, I understand that Jack Kornfield knows the Altman. Mm. And so if I get out there and I can catch Jack, I should even write him, but I would like to put that in his mind. Like, I just asked the question, are you feeding Sanskrit? Are you feeding Tibetan? And why not? From Jack's point of view, they should be feeding Burmese and maybe Sinhalese from Sri Lanka, because he's a Theravada guy, you know. But I think that's very important. They're so worried about a possible AI computer monster developing with no ethics and pure efficiency notification, you know, ideas. So therefore, they might be inefficient to have human beings making a mess and do us all in. You know, that's their big fear. But they're not feeding that. And our sciences have no connection to ethics because right. we're only robots. When we die, whatever we've learned in life is becomes nothing. They even think we are nothing when we die because they think nothing is something, because they're a little irrational, I think, the modern materialists are. They think they're super smart, but in fact, they're philosophically very naive, it seems to us. Absolutely. So that brings me to a question. How is it that you see yoga and Buddhism coming into therapeutic contexts? Yeah. Um, being integrated into modern mental health treatments? Well, I see it as happening best by it not insisting on being Buddhism. Or Buddhism is really making out of the word for enlightenment, you know, a human being coming to their full potential into an ism. And oh. definitely in the Asian historical setting and Iranian, because actually Buddhism was very much in Iran, you know, Mani was hailed Buddha as one of his teachers along with Jesus and so on. So it, it had more influence into Alexandria and through Iran in the West than people want to admit. But the point is, it really was it was known one word that they, they didn't have the word Buddhism in India for it until quite late. They called them the Adhyatmikas, the inner scientists, is what they called the Buddhas. Because they felt since they didn't believe in a creator God, they must not really be religious. So they didn't call them by an ism actually until 14th until after Buddhism was pretty much gone, you know, or maybe just as they were weakening and getting attacked by the Muslims, by the invaders, and who are not good Muslims, actually, because I think good Muslims have always liked Buddhism. So I don't see an ultimate gulf between them. So it, it can integrate well by not being Buddhism, by offering its sort of sciences as an alternative thing. And for example, Vajra Yoga, what the Vajra means there which Vajra has many meanings, but one of them is a diamond. In the Vedic time, it meant a thunderbolt, actually, like something very powerful. But uh, And then diamond is something that, you, you know, because diamond is the hardest thing, right? You can't break a diamond easily. But what it really means is ultimate reality. And then this is the whole matrix of the Buddhist teaching, is that ultimate reality is really good. People believe in God as ultimate reality, for example, theists do. And they have to believe that God is good, and they generally do, or they say it. But of course, I feel always it's very unfortunate to attribute omnipotence to another person, because then when you have really a hard time, some awful things happen to you, you get kind of annoyed with that person. You think they're omnipotent, and what about me? You know, what do you do to me? Do you know what I mean? Like Elie Wiesel being so angry with his idea of God after the Holocaust, you know, for many years and many other people. So the point is, if ultimate reality, however, is sheer good, good energy, if we have an expression in Mahayana Buddhism called the clear light of the void or clear light of emptiness. And clear light is like, it's sort of like sky or space or something, but it's a little more tricky because it's a space filled with infinite energy rather than a blank space. Then there's this tricky, confusing, paradoxical thing infinite energy, if that's the ultimate stuff of the universe, doesn't do anything, because everything is done from its sort of level. And also, it doesn't therefore underlie us as beings that have limited energy. We manifest out of it in a limited way, usually, and sometimes frustrating because we think it's too limited, or we have pain and suffering and things like that. But very key thing that people really haven't understood about Buddhism and uh, I make a big fuss about it, 
that it took me maybe four decades to kind of really finally realize it, because Buddha did have this thing where he said, well, unenlightened life will be unhappy, it will be frustrating, he said, suffering, you know. But enlightened life is fantastic, meaning if you know what you are, you're going to be really cooled out. And you don't have to go die to do it, you don't have to disappear to do it. I mean, there's a version he let people think, maybe you got to go to another place where everything is fine and leave this one where it isn't. But the more harder way is, it's fine here if you understand it, even whatever happens, you know. There's no death. One of my favorite things is on YouTube by the Dalai Lama, who was in the Warsaw, what do you call it, lounge for important guests. And obviously, it doesn't show the whole incident, but obviously a group of children wearing Polish ethnic costume had done some sort of dance, folk dance or something. So they were crowding around him after that dance. You know, 12, 13, 11, boys and girls. And then one girl worked up her courage, and she said to him, well, Your Holiness, we're so happy to see you, and we're happy you enjoyed our dancing, And but we worry about you. And he says, why are you worried about me? He said, well, it must be so hard for you, all that reincarnating, she said. That must be really difficult, you know? <laughs> and he says, he says, oh, no, no, it's no worries. He says, like, for example, look at your beautiful dress, you know, which is one of those white things with the little red flowers, you know how they make in Eastern Europe? And he said, look at their beautiful dress. Now, you may have had a previous one that got old and a little ragged, and your mom went and got you a new one. He said, And then you were so happy when you put that on. So reincarnated is just like you get a new dress. You just put it on like that, he says. And, and they got, out of these kids went, that's really nice. <laughs> no problem. I was so touched because, you know, you're not supposed to talk about death or things with children, but he managed to make it a light thing to sort of relieve anxiety, maybe a little bit, subliminally. They were just saying him and his reincarnation. I'm sure they weren't identifying with that, and he didn't ask them to. But he just planted a little seed of being a little more relaxed about the deep, dark, dreaded thing that everybody's so scared of, by saying it's like wearing a new dress. It's only three or four minutes on YouTube, one of those little snatches of Dalai Lama saying something. I was so proud of him when I saw that. So that's the one best thing, is the Vajra idea. So, for example, in healing yoga and everything, you're switching around. See, I feel that in our cultures, and that includes Indian culture, Chinese, ancient cultures, as well as modern ones, I don't romanticize them, but, you know, the authorities, like high priests and kings, they pretty much terrified their citizens that life is really dangerous and scary and is really bad, and you need them to tell you what to do with some dogmas and theories and discipline from the king and punishments and things. And so everybody's kind of grows up scared of reality, even mm. if they think God is good, but maybe God will punish me if I had too much fun or I shouted in church or I didn't go to church, whatever it might be. And whereas the Vajra idea is the default reality is good. Your body likes you. It doesn't try to hurt you. So if you're gentle with it and you want to learn to do downward dog and stretch a little bit, you don't have to freak out about it. You don't have to fear you're going to rip it apart. You shouldn't also overdo it. But, you know, basically the background is good. And so that's the first aspect of Vajra. And the second one that I think is valuable is what I call spiritual neuroscience, which has to do with the subtle body, maybe the way that the Buddhists and Hindus and Taoists also, I think, structure, and maybe Sufis, structure the vagus system, not just the brain, but the whole body as a brain, with all this nervous system. And they learn to put their imagination in different parts of the nervous system to generate positive effects, you know, to relieve this and do that. And they learn how to control the breathing in certain ways. And so, in other words, to see themselves as a little bit in control even of their nervous system, which is, I think, the deeper job of yoga. It isn't just, well, of course, if someone's doing it just to be stretched and not get arthritis in their knee joint or their wrists or something over years, which they will help them, it will help them because it's designed scientifically by great sages, the yoga system, by these various systems, but especially the subtle body business, which they can be structured in different ways. It's kind of software. It's not a dogmatic hardware, oh, you have to do the Buddhist way. You can do other ways, but the idea that you know, you could create a feeling of warmth in your heart by thinking about the heart chakra 
and being a nice place. And if you put your imagination there and develop contemplative one-pointedness a little bit, which is just a skill, it isn't a dogma from a religion, that you might then have a warm feeling in your heart when you inhale maybe and hold your breath in Kumbhaka for like 15 seconds or something and feel warm spreading from where the oxygen is in the lungs. And that to me, I think, is a really valuable thing because I feel that our, our health system has been very ruined by mechanistic attitude and also the profit motive by the poor doctors get sucked in and the horrible insurance companies dominate them. And the whole thing is really, really a mess, in my opinion. So people need to have more self-confidence about their managing their own health and so forth and their own life force and have more confidence in their pleasure and life force and open-heartedness, open-mindedness. And I think they can do that by using whatever version, if you know, if they have an affinity for Patanjali, then they should do whatever the Vihata Yoga Pradipika says the chakras are. If they have a predilection for some Buddhist thing, they can use some Tibetan thing. If they have a predilection for Taoism, they can have, you know, Lao Tzu in their heart chakra or whatever. It doesn't matter. Or Kundalini in their navel chakra, whatever it might be, if they're doing Kundalini Yoga. But I think that's very valuable. And of course, it will be misunderstood by nervous, religiously very extremist people as sort of still sneaking in Buddhism or something. And that'll be hard to overcome that misapprehension. But I think we can work on it. I think that could happen. The key thing is to encourage people, give them more self-confidence about life, about their body, about the power of their spiritual insight and the importance of it, and overcome this nihilistic, mechanistic thing that is supposedly scientific, all based on scientific discoveries, which it isn't. It's a, just a naive philosophical decision to only consider things to be mechanistic material. Nobody found that. In fact, late since 1926, you know, the Copenhagen time, they've discovered they can't even find matter. Mm -hmm. You don't even know what it is. It dissolves under analysis, which the ancient Indian inner sciences said so, not just the Buddhists, 2,500 years ago, they yogically said that there's no ultimate indivisible particle. The yogi types. There is a Vaisheshika. There was a school within Indian science, if you know, called the Vaisheshikas, who adamantly insisted on an atom, and they had control of that atom, and it supported their Brahminical or whatever. So, but that was a minority channel in Indian science. So those are the two really fascinating things. The larger thing, the Vajra thing, is it's all good, Deep down, you have to find it, and uh, anything that wrong is our own misunderstanding, and we have to therefore investigate it more thoroughly, and then we'll find the, our own reality. And it isn't a far and weird reality, it's our own reality, and that's one. And then two, we can have a look and have a sense of feeling our own subtle level. Mm. That's identifying as our course body level. We can do inner neuroscience. I have a question about each one of those parts. Please about do, please do, please do it. So let's start with the second one, the ability to do spiritual neuroscience on ourselves. Yes. That's a modern term, but do you think that idea goes all the way back to the ancient teachings, even if they didn't call it neuroscience? Is that what you mean by the kind of inner scientist that well, is sort of changed yeah, yeah. the body? Sure, they did sort of call it a neuroscience, actually, but that was esoteric in ancient time until fairly recently, actually, and less so in Tibet. But in India, it was somewhat esoteric. But they did call it that because the subtle body is defined as nerves, energies, you know, like a breath energy, but also the circulatory energy or the flow of lymph in the body or even the electrical transmissions in the, any movement in the body is energies, not just breathing, wind. And then channels, winds, channels which are the nerves, winds, then the endocrine system, what they call bindu or drops. And so that's the subtle body. And then the subtle mind is some kind of deeper vision that is a little advanced to reach where you see things as almost at the level of the three gunas, if you know Hindu thing. You know, yeah. you see this bright energy, sort of a light, a lightness, and then an energy, and then an inertia, sort of darkness, which are sort of moonlit, sunlit, and dark. Mm -hmm. uh, those three levels. And that's the subtle mind. It's like the unconscious mind. And the other thing about it was in India, 
the reason that they developed these great yogas, Buddhists and Hindu and Jain, all three, and any other people who are less known, was that since they believed they had a spirit, a soul, and a mind, and that that mind would go on beyond the death of this coarse body, they felt they better not be driven wherever they're going to by an unconscious in which there are all kinds of greed, hatred, fear, confusion, and depression, and terrible attitudes, sort of unconscious, you know, like what Freud talked about, eros and thanatos. And he didn't have a word for the confusion, depression one. I think I like to say the Greek god, Aletheia, who makes you forget stuff, supposedly. So the point is, they didn't accept that the unconscious has to always be unconscious. So mm-hmm. the highest kind of therapy was to go in and clean out the Aegean stable of the unconscious. And that's where all the meditative focus and the yoga thing comes from in those cultures, which makes them more advanced, actually, than our one, where we deny that we have anything but the mechanical thing, and therefore we seek only inputs from outside to control our condition, and we only can live with the fear of death because we feel confident that we'll just be nothing, which actually means we'll be anesthetized. Maybe we won't be there to be able to eat ice cream, but we'll be anesthetized, so it won't be painful. And that's how the scientists sell that completely false and unevidenced idea. It has no evidence that anything can become nothing, actually. Right. In fact, the opposite is the case. Their conservation of energy is the evidence. And mm-hmm. super subtle energy of awareness is also energy. Cannot be created nor destroyed. That's right. <laughs> it's just channeled, channeled by inner neuroscience. <laughs> that brings us to my second question. Okay, second question. And the ultimate reality is full of goodness. I know that we should or can match our inner neuroscience to goodness and that that's the direction we want to go and we want to clean out the greed and the hatred and but is that in some way spiritually bypassing that all of that exists no i don't think so because it says it goes along with you know that we don't necessarily feel that way Actually, that means that at our deepest, deepest awareness, what they call Buddha nature, or that's just enlightening nature, let's just say, that there's an openness at the core of any sentient being. There's a sense of being connected to some sort of benevolent upsurge, like the vital force or healing energy or something. And uh, theistic people think, oh, that's I feel God except for a little bit weird extremist theologies where they say, oh no, God, it can't be in you. Well, that's heresy, or that must be Satan. That's a very demented thing. You have that in Eastern ones, some of the Eastern ones are like that too, some of the Eastern monotheism. They have their own monotheism, especially India. And they get like that, where to sort of show their adulation of some absolute that's not them, they consider heretical the idea that you are made of God yourself. But that's what all mystics have discovered in all cultures, actually. And luckily, India was more tolerant of those kind of people than the West, where they would burn the wise woman in the woods who knew how to cure the cotton cold. You know, they were freaked out by someone who had a different kind of open-heartedness based on having discovered within the heart an openness in there. You know, people who had near-death experiences get like that. The other day I was meeting a doctor who is a medical doctor in California and who came over to visit our Menland. He and his wife came and they had a little retreat there. And we were chatting with him, kind of getting to know him. And he suddenly said to me and my wife, as we were chatting in this sort of dinnerish kind of moment, he said, oh, you know, when I was 16, I died. And this, and I met Jesus. And I really did die. And Jesus was about to send me. I met him. I went down some light thing and I met him. He was there, because he was a little bit fundamentalist-style Christian community. And there was Jesus, and Jesus was sort of opening another portal and saying, yeah, you're kind of young, but that's what's happened, so here you go, it'll be okay. And then he claimed, he said to Jesus, wait a minute, I'm not ready. I have other things I wish to do for other people that I care about, and so I really don't want to. And then Jesus said, well kind of looking doubtful, he claims. And then she says, well, okay, I think it's not too long. It hasn't been too long. Go ahead back. And bam, he was back in his body, which had been, he was in Guatemala. 
on a kind of Peace Corps, junior Peace Corps thing with some kids, and he got sucked into quicksand and smothered. But they had managed to pull the body out. But then they had just, you know, put a tag on his leg. And he was like over there for like an hour or something. And then he came back. So then he said, and you could tell he was a very cool guy, you know, because somehow he found out at what, where he thought he had gone to the ultimate, that there was some goodness there. And that's always then kept in his heart. Mm-hmm. And we were so delighted. It was amazing talking with him. I think many people have had this kind of experience in different ways. Some didn't go to the whole length of having to actually die and come back. But people have had strange sort of out-of-body things or dreams where suddenly they feel, wow, this is all really cool. And they begin to feel good. And I actually think that people who are invalid and who then recover, they have remission or they heal or whatever it is, are those who sort of kind of find a deeper energy in themselves is really the thing. I think that the good doctor feels that and they don't pretend they did it, but they help remove symptoms and they try to clear the jungle of whatever mishappen, difficulties have happened. They look at the symptoms, but they kind of, and they project. That's, I think, the secret of the placebo effect and the good bedside manner. They project a kind of faith in the inner energy of the person. A doctor who thinks all about me and it's my gimmick and, oh, well, you might fail as a mechanism, but I did the best things. Those are not going to be really good doctors, I think. They're going to have a poor bedside manner. They're only going to see the sickness and they're not going to see the potential healing in a person. So I feel the healing energy in a person, the vital force, is that clear light wanting to manifest itself. That's why I say it's sort of like impersonal love, you could say, because what is love? Love is wanting the beloved to be happy. So if the beloved has a deficiency, love wants to supplement that deficiency. So imagine if reality itself is defined as an energy that isn't imposing on anybody, because it doesn't need to, because it sees everybody's made of that. But then if somebody themselves doesn't know that, and then they get all knotted up, but then if they open a little different way, there is what they really wanted within them. It comes out like that. So it's not a denial of the suffering or anything like that. You know, I always say to people who are dubious about this kind of thing, I refer them to the Zoloft commercial. Have you ever seen it? No, I don't watch TV. Enlighten me. You don't watch TV? You're so good. Well, I do. And uh, I've occasionally seen the Zoloft commercial. I haven't seen it lately, actually. And in the Zoloft commercial, there's a lady in a kitchen in the morning, everything going wrong. Husband Mm -hmm. saying, the waffle that she was toasting is smoking, you know, the kid is screaming, throws his power to the floor, the dog is doing some wrong thing. I mean, it's a really bad scene. And then it goes out into this suburban house, into the field, and the, the yellow weeds, or whatever they are, daisies, flowers, detach from the stem, and they spell Zoloft, you know, in the sky, <laughs> out the kitchen window. And then you come back to the scene, and the implication, of course, is she took one, and then she's boom, bam, you know, gets her own coffee here. Here's another waffle. Here's everything. Dog out the door, you know. In other words, she's taking care of things because she feels better. So I refer to that because we all do sort of really know that when we feel kind of zingy, things that are difficult when we don't are easy. Mm-hmm. And they're much more skilled than, you know, like great athletes, they're trained in such a way that they're not stressed when they do a triple axle or quadruple. They're just flying because they've ingrained it so well and they kind of have a bliss in doing it and that, that makes them successful. They're drawing on this energy of life, I feel. And that's what Buddha's discovery. Nobody pays attention. First, noble truth, as they call it, although I call that a friendly fun fact. <laughs> is the unenlightened life. He doesn't say, like Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. He never says that. Human life is immensely precious. He says the unenlightened life is going to be frustrating. Mm-hmm. But you can understand why, and you can replace that un- misunderstanding with wisdom, and then you discover reality, which is nirvana. Yeah. And, but that may take an educational process, and then he has the Eightfold Path, and so forth. So, so, but people don't pay attention to that third one, which is a prognosis. Do you know what I mean? It is a pattern of a medical diagnosis, but the prognosis, that's the most important one. Nirvana is the prognosis for human beings, all sentient beings, actually, but easier through the human embodiment because of our intelligence. You know? 
So anyway, that's the thing. So we're almost complete, but <laughs> let someone take a shortcut and say, I don't know if I believe in this clear light manifesting through me, but it's better than the alternative. So I'm going to try to attune myself to that. Well, in a theistic sense, however, it doesn't mean they have to drop that. That means they have to sort of imagine that somehow God, if they want to feel God is good, and that God is not doing the bad things that are happening. You know, people and other kinds of negative beings are doing the bad things, but God is there to catch you. Like, the guy died, that was very bad. He was only 16. He got swamped in a kind of special ash. He was taking this crew, like hiking in a volcanic area, and he stepped on what looked like a hard surface and went and sunk in the ash of volcanic area. So that's very bad that he died at that age. The death of a young person who hasn't fulfilled their living purpose kind of is very, very lamentable in anywhere, any culture. And yet the goodness met him on his way out and enabled him to come back. That was in the form of Jesus, because that's what he, how he expected to see goodness. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful. And that's where, you know, like a Buddhist could say, well, they don't have to say it's clear light of the void. They just say it's God. In that case, maybe God felt he wasn't doing enough, so he sent his son. The Tibetans always ask the Christian theologians in particular, not necessarily the individuals. They always ask him, how come I'm the a guy only sent one kid one time? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> you those Jesus people. <laughs> that's oh, right. How about, how about, you know, you have five kids and you're just a theologian. Like, why can God only have one? Why, why, why are you restricting omnipotent being to have as many as he feels he's needed? But they, that's challenging for them, of course, because he did the long ago. They have all these Greek philosophical theory. Anyway, that's really fun. So nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. I think a lot of things I did. You had the best questions, by the way, Amy. <laughs> we didn't go there, but I loved how this interview went. I need to just be with what is unfolding between us. So wonderful. And so, I just wanted to show people your website so that they can look into all the marvelous offerings that you're having. So it oh, is. Oh, you're showing the website. Oh, you did that. I see. I thought somehow I did something. Great. Yeah, that's my website. Bob Thurman. That connects, that connects to the Menla website, M E N L A. Mm-hmm. That also connects to the Tibet House website. Yeah. That's me about 10 years ago. Mm. And uh, that's me. That was a funny one, that one, where Dalai Lama's laughing and holding my hand, that, uh, that picture. Uh, and that's really interesting things on your website. My beloved, that's my teacher. My yeah. beloved Nena is her name, a Swedish German lady. We met when we were 25. Mm. Uh, we've been married for 56 years now, going on 57, four kids. That. I, I was like, no, I think that's his wife, <laughs> but she is your teacher. She is also my teacher, yes, and mm. uh, very much so. You know, males who grew up in vestigial patriarchal societies, they definitely need to learn something from women. And we definitely have a lot to learn and a lot to listen to. And I'm still trying after 57 years. I'm still not perfect. <laughs> you almost gave up the Tibet house because of her dream. <laughs> that's right. That's right. She's the one who really made it, actually. I just talked. She really organized it, beautifully handled all the people and did all the things and made it just beautiful because she has a beautiful heart. Mm. She Well, thank you for being with us today. I have a goal now of coming to visit you at the Spa Resort in the Catskills. That sounds just divine. And I wish you well in the Vajra Yoga Initiative. Will this take a couple of decades or how long till this will? Well, I hope it will go long beyond my lifetime and it will become a brand that many, a number of our students who've done teacher training with us, only a couple that we've done, I know if we were getting going on them, so they're drafts kind of almost, but they're working. Some of them are already yoga teachers in Hatha Yoga level, and hopefully they'll add that component to what they teach and do. And it has a very strong ethical thing about it. One of our major things in the learning process that we do is that the idea of an enlightened person just behaving any old way because they're enlightened is actually wrong, and that's not the case. And enlightened people are even more ethical, actually, in fact. And that's very important to know because, you know, there have been all kind of mishaps in 
in communities where that other idea has spread wrongly. And so I hope it will go on. That's what I'm sure His Holiness too. And one of the major sites I would like it to go on, I'm working with people to work on that, is India, where you know you have a kind of schism where you have some really serious yogis who are spiritual teachers and who have students who are really they they're fantastic yogis and things like that, but they're kind of in a special place. And they're honored by the main people, but the middle-class Indian youth and middle-aged people, they don't do yoga, and they love to be like Americans. They want to make money, they want to be middle-class. India basically has such strong spiritual energy that they're still respectful, usually, to the Lama Swamis and the people. But their young people don't think they want to go to a rave dance. They don't want to go do Hatha Yoga in a site that isn't where some other guy is like already bending like a pretzel and they feel kind of left out, you know. So to create a kind of urban middle class, like a yoga centers in the cities, they haven't really risen yet. So I would hope there would be a brand called Vajra Yoga as well as the other brands that are going to be there. And I know that there's a feeling in India, you know, the big yoga groups in the West are sort of expropriated their cultural thing and they are excluded from it, except for that one guy with a hothouse yoga, the, the former Rolls-Royce dealer who has a piece who's Indian, ethnically. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if he has Mumbai or Delhi, or and they could use yoga in a sort of middle-class level, even in schools, I think, like even athletics. Why are they only playing competitive games, sort of male military training competitive games? Why isn't that an option in a college in India? Or it should be at Columbia, but it isn't. Maybe in the infirmary, so there might be a yoga teacher in some college in some parts of the states. But that's the hope, is that it will become more widespread. So some people tried to start a yoga center and the gym at UVA Charlottesville, actually. Mm-hmm. One of my former students and a donor backer. But then this was chewed up by the development people at that university, and they turned it into a Western neuroscience center. with a little tiny little yoga course somewhere, you know, part-time teacher, you know, instead of like, football coach level guy, giving students the opportunity to do yoga as part of their undergraduate athletic quota, which yeah. was what the donor originally wanted, but or the donor's wife actually originally wanted that. I but know all about so that. Far, so far, I, you do, good. But so far, it was too bad that was defeated, didn't you? But, and it will eventually be successful, I'm sure, in different schools. But I didn't succeed at Columbia. They didn't succeed there. But slowly, someone will succeed in different places. Hopefully more in California might be a start. You never know. And I'm affiliated with the Bakken Center at the University of Minnesota, which also has a strong Tibetan medicine initiative. So, oh, good. That's good. That's great. Yeah. UCLA has a little going in that direction also. So, so, but that may be beyond my lifespan in this body. Although I told the president of Columbia to his astonishment when they were having lunch, he said, Well, you know, Lee. You know that Professor Thurman needs at least three lifetimes to finish his project, don't you? Oh, my goodness. I was so <laughs> shocked. Lot of work. <laughs> I was so shocked. Everyone was embarrassed. But it was sort of done as a joke. People were laughing. And then he came back, the president, very, very aptly. And he said, oh, that's great, Your Holiness. Too bad we don't have that reincarnation system here at Columbia. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Then I thought, why not? <laughs> Uh, I didn't say anything. Anyway. Well, thank you, Dr. Thurman, for your time, your joy, your your heart. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Okay, you too. Me too. Thank you so much. All the best. Please call me again if you have a a gap. I'd love to talk more about your other questions. Okay, Uh, we will. Maybe we'll do a second one. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Anytime. All the best. Take care. Thank you to Dr. Thurman for spending this time with us today so generously and offering to come back again, which I hope we do because we honestly didn't get to any of the questions that I wanted to ask him. And yet it was just such a lovely interview. Along the lines of Tibetan healing and yoga and Buddhism, I want all of you to know that I am moving to Minnesota and I've established a new initiative in 2024 that is all about helping yoga and therapeutic yoga come to the University of Minnesota. We're going to be having many, many offerings, which I'll put in the show notes starting in 2024 at the University of Minnesota Buckhand Center. 
And that center has a whole Tibetan healing initiative. And as Dr. Thurman said, there's a whole type of Tibetan Ayurveda that is very similar to the type of Ayurveda that we study in the yogic circles. So it is an interesting world that we're being a part of. We're starting to see all of these things come together and it's wonderful. And I look forward to sharing more about the Ken Center work that I'll be doing in 2024. All right, have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. If you've enjoyed this program, there's a few things you can do to help us. You can share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family. You can give us a great rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. You can support us on Patreon, and you can download the Optimal State mobile app and start using it to track your own nervous system. All of these things will help us to produce and give you the gift of the Yoga Therapy Hour for many years to come. Thank you, our listeners, for supporting us. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.